welcome back handmaids and members of the carb resistance we are so glad you're back with us in what might be gilead for another couple of years if we don't win into oh i'm so sorry we're actually talking about a fictional world my bad <laughs> welcome back pop culture theologians we're so glad you're here um Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Twitter at Pop Culture Theologians. Um, we're incredibly sassy right now, um, the Twitterverse, um, as well as make sure you give a shout out. Um, if you're there, go look at you know the Engaged Gaze, our, our host site, and of course, our beloved sister podcast, The Bible Bitches. And John, if I wanted to follow you on Twitter, where would I follow you? You would follow me at jerickson85 because I have a basic handle. Yeah, you're a basic bitch. <laughs> uh, hey, folks. Uh, Marcy here. Uh, I kind of really feel like calling myself Martha lately because they're inspiring. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at I am the men who can, which, as y'all know, is a Wonder Woman reference. So some of you who have um, been diehards know that we always do uh, what the f happened this week and we didn't do it for the past couple of episodes we because haven't. a lot of stuff happened. However, we're going back to our old ways because we got some tea to spill. So Marcy, what the f happened this week? A lot has happened this week. Um, I actually debated a lot whether or not we would do what the fuck again, period. I think because um, I think a lot of us are bearing the trauma of the news, but then I was reminded, uh, have you seen the film, The Farewell yet? No, not yet. I really um, want to try and see it later this weekend. So uh, to anyone listening, The Farewell is uh, a film focusing on uh, a, a simple lie. It stars Aquafina and the family, uh, refusing to tell their grandmother that she is passing away, right? That's the promise. That is not me spoiling anything. There was this great line in it, though, um, where Aquafina, who has been raised in Brooklyn, um, she's in China with the rest of her family, questions like how it could be moral to not tell the grandmother that she's dying. And her uncle says something to the extent of, we, in, you know, in the West, you have this individualistic, um, lens through which you view your life, right? Everything's about you and your happiness and whatnot. Um, but in the East, we think of ourselves communally, and it is a gift to be able to bear the burden of, of grandmother's cancer for her so she doesn't have to. And that line kind of stuck with me about what it means to bear the burden uh, when others can't. And like sometimes bearing the burden is just bearing witness to what is happening so it's very easy for me it's not easy for me um it's been a really difficult couple of weeks but it's it's it is easier for me to say you know what i don't even want to touch the news like we usually do before our podcasts because i'm hurting and i'm scared and i'm frustrated and i'm angry but then i want to remind um myself and like and i know john stands behind me on this and our listeners that like bearing the witness to horror and bearing that is not supposed to be easy so it's not. it's not. And like, while I do emphasize, I do this in my personal life, but also in my work, which is actually on the ground justice work. Um, I do emphasize self-care. I think we can't self-flagellate and then expect ourselves to like be able to show up on Monday to, to help anyone or to, to work towards freedom. I do think that 
uh, to think that there is any way to escape the horrors of what is happening right now is impossible. So what the fuck happened this week? Well, I'm starting to lose count of fucking shootings. And that is really, 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 really miserable. You mean targeted hits towards communities of color that are um, promulgated by our racist in chief? Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Uh, I want to start with, um, with El Paso. Uh, so as many of you know, uh, at an El Paso Walmart, um, a, a young man named Patrick Crucis entered the Walmart with an AK-47 and gunned down people going aisle by aisle, particularly Hispanics. Um, he drove himself from his hometown of Allen, Texas to El Paso, which by the way, is one of the safest cities in the country. It, it, um, it is an example of like, it has its problems, but like statistically one of the safest cities in the world. But um, Crucius actually chose it because of its rich historical kind of Latino community. It's a border town. Um, and it's... When the news hit, um, I got an alert on my phone. We uh, were just actually finishing recording an episode. We were. We, <laughs> we were. Um, and I, I didn't even think anything of it because when I saw it, it said um, active shooter situation Walmart in El Paso. I screenshotted it to some of my colleagues because I'm actually heading to El Paso in a couple of weeks to do work on the ground. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. And as the news kind of started coming out, you know, 22 shot, um, like 20, I think it's 26 injured, uh, 22 shot dead. Um, the youngest being a baby of four months. Um, and I, I sort like, it's interesting because I, I just kind of kept checking the news, checking the news. Um, and there was something about the way in the, which they were reporting it that I like looked to my husband and I said, it's a white dude it's a white man. And um, part of it was that it took a very long time to get the description out. Um, I wonder why. Right. And, um, and very, very quickly uh, just kind of pundit there's, there's coded language when it, when it's a white young shooter, which by the way, it's always a white young shooter um, in these situations. Uh, bet he white. Right. Right. Yeah. And so um following this very shortly after he was identified as a 21 year old um, male from Allen, Texas, uh, news started and, and not news, but sources that I, so I, I am someone who is on Reddit quite often. Um, Reddit and a couple other sources started reporting that he had posted a manifesto on 8chan, which 8chan is a darker version of 4chan, which is bananas since those are both the dark web, right? And um, he had posted a manifesto um, and the manifesto, for those of you who didn't read it, and I don't think you should have to read it, um, but if you can bear the weight of it, it is important to read it because it is important to understand the shooting. And I'm going to tie this to Gilead in particular, and I'm actually going to tie Dayton as well. Um, so the the manifesto cited a Hispanic invasion and a great replacement theory. And he, it was extremely well-written. Um, and the reason I know that is because I studied Elliot Rogers manifesto for my dissertation from the Santa Barbara shooting. 
his manifesto was 150 pages about himself. <laughs> and the only part of, of real importance, other than the dripping misogyny throughout all of Elliot Rogers' manifesto, was he started off his manifesto with this vision of the world where men rule, uh, white men rule alone, women are used as incubators, um, and men would all feel the power of masculinity and wouldn't need women and wouldn't need anything other than like their white maleness. That is the beginning of Elliot Rogers' manifesto. Um, it reads cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? Like the first time I read it, I was like, oh, this is useful for my dissertation on The Handmaid's Tale because here's a vision of a world without women and a, a vision of a world where women are used solely to propagate other men. So like um, this manifesto, you can see the, how much these theories and how much this rhetoric has evolved over the last like six, seven years. Um, he's got every talking point that a Fox News pundit needs. He brought up environmentalism. He brought up diversity as from the perspective of white diversity being eliminated. Um, uh, the, the great replacement theory is that we are so commingling and particularly in the West, Hispanics are the ones really kind of having a lot of children because of poverty, not because we just really like to fucking breed. Um, every time countries become uh, like highly educated, ch child birth rates go down, right? So um, the obviously immigrants are having more children, but that that is a generational thing that starts to slow down. Like my grandmother uh, was one of 20, my grandmother was the 22nd child. My mom has nine siblings. I only have one sibling in three generations. Look how much we cut it down, right? Um, but the manifesto is horrifying. Um, and as a Latina, there's something about the wording in the manifesto. He makes it clear that there's other men just waiting to attack, like waiting to do other attacks just like this. So I feel like there is like a, a, like a target on, on my back and I pass pretty well. But um, to, to end talking about um, El Paso and the deep sadness that I feel for these families and these folks, my mom, um, the day after El Paso, told my dad that she shouldn't speak when we're in public because she puts us all at risk. My mom um, speaks very broken English. Um, my dad, my brother, and I obviously are fluent. Um, my mom is an American citizen. It's just she's lived in Los Angeles and Miami where she's been able to be kind of very flexible with, with her language. Um, that is maybe like the most horrifying thing I've felt because I can't protect my mom from this at all. Similarly to how those folks in El Paso could not protect their children, their families, or anyone. So our hearts go out to El Paso um, as people who study religion and, and systems of oppression huge red flags are going up. Huge, 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 huge red flags. And what happened in Dayton, Marcy? So Dayton, um, here's, here's how loony things have gotten. Or oh, you mean Toledo? Right. In Toledo, uh, our president couldn't even keep it the right uh, city in his mouth. Um, it's not usual that even I am surprised by our gun violence. Um, as we're processing El Paso, we wake up to the news of a shooting in Dayton, Ohio. Um, Connor Betts, uh, a 24-year-old 24, 24 man wearing- You mean a 24-year-old white domestic terrorist? Yes, white domestic terrorist wearing full body armor, 
carrying um, like high capacity machine gun, uh, managed to kill his sister and eight others with dozens more uh, injured in that rampage before he was fatally shot by officers. So the, the, they're saying that um, within less than 20, like five seconds, he was able to kill eight people. Um, and actually, I'm going to correct myself because news just broke and I totally forgot that I was going to bring this in. News just broke actually that um, he killed his brother. His brother, who was a trans man, uh, and eight others were killed. Um, the reason this is super, super, super important is um, Connor Betts online had a very, very anti-woman presence. He was part of the incel community, which is the same type of community that Elliot Roger was a part of, which um, uh, he was, it, so if we're tying El Paso and Dayton, white male Christian patriarchal supremacy, cisgendered supremacy is what we're talking about. That is where we connect these two. Um, he was part of a death metal like rape band like, so a band whose songs included everything from Can't Wait to Rape My Baby Sister to, uh, like, I'm not even going to go into it. Um, but when we think of Gilead and we think of the rage that, to a certain extent, I'm thinking of our first snapshot of Nick and how disenfranchised he felt. And, like, how does Nick end up a commander in Gilead? Like, he's a fucking insult. That's what he is, right? Like, and, and how Margaret Atwood so aptly in 1985 predicted that like gender traitors would be on the wall, right? And like, um, I think that, I think that we are reaching levels where you can see that the folks on the wrong side of history are starting to feel that they are on the wrong side of history. And like, that is a very interesting turning point um, because I don't know, like there are things we can, and John, you know policy more than I do. There are things we can policy our way out of, right? We can policy our way out of concentration camps. We can policy our way out of like prop eights and we can policy our way out of like systemic racism and mass incarceration. We cannot policy our, our way out of ideologies that are spreading like wildfire um, in a country where the tools to then propagate mass terrorism are protected by the state. Uh, so yes, we could probably policy guns away. Uh, I don't think we're going to. But even then, the problem of a white male cisgendered Christian patriarchal violent society is still here. It's why, you know, one out of every four women is beat by like her partner or has experienced abuse at the hands of her partner. One out of six women are raped. Like that's not stuff we can policy our way out of, right? So very difficult, very difficult week. Um, by the way, the Gilroy sh shooting in California, the shooter also left a manifesto uh, against Hispanics. And so in closing off what the fuck happened this week, today there was a massive ice raid in Mississippi. Yesterday. Yesterday. Sorry. My days are all blurring. Uh, 680 people were removed from this uh, chicken food processing plant. 
uh, who were working here without authorization. Um, I think that it is important for me, the part that I wanted to focus on here was we live in a world where there is this sector that considers themselves pro-life, right? And they have waged war against pretty much anyone in the name of, of fetuses, and uh, they would say children. Um, the children of these 680 people who were taken into U.S. detention center, there was zero plan for what was supposed to happen to them. Zero plan. Volunteers who were on the ground, like regular Joes like you and me, started gathering the children and moving them to a nearby school gym and with their own money bought them food because not a single thought had been given to what happens to these kids who most are American citizens, by the way, um, when their parents are taken away, right? And, um, and that's a stark contrast. And I don't know what to do with this contrast to Gilead, right? where Gilead's like, we value children above everything. And it's like, until you value, like, here's the, maybe the contrast. Gilead similarly values children until they are sexually viable. And then they're handmaids. <laughs> and he, here in the US, we value children until the day they are born. And then we, we shame them for their poverty. We create systems where they don't, they cannot afford to be taken care of. And then we let them get shot in schools. And then we put them in debt that will last them for the rest of their lives if they even made it through school. So really, I'm sorry, like it's a super dark what the fuck this week, but so much of Gilead is reflected and these things that are happening that I think it's important for us to be like, okay, so maybe situating Gilead as some far off dystopian nightmare is not fair anymore. Because Gilead is here, my friends. It's at the front door. We are at a like, turning point in our history as people, as humans, as Americans, uh, where either we go, nope, nope, and, and we, we riot, not just for 2020, but we riot in general that the system is broken and we will fix it, or we march further and further into Gilead. So with that, Let's break down two of the most interesting episodes in a really long time. And, um, and we'll see actually how it relates to everything that's happening in our world. So you ready, John? Let's do it. All right. So episode 11 is called Liars. Um, I kind of love that they're getting sassier with their episode titles. I do too. Um, I do too. And I think, um, they, have, they usually have very short titles, which I appreciate. Um, but I think it's because we're meant to interpret, for, like, for this episode, we're meant to interpret the weight of lying and liars in this episode. So walk me through the beginning of this episode. Um, so basically, um, what we see here in the episode is that um, June, um, June plays a lot of roles in this episode. Uh, she's becoming in many ways a master manipulator, or I think she thinks she's a master manipulator, but um, she stops Mrs. Lawrence from killing Commander Lawrence. And um, the real Eleanor really comes out. As we all know, um, Mrs. Lawrence, or Eleanor, um, is off of her meds because Gilead stopped um, sending them out because they're contraband, because they believe you can pray, you know, it away and so basically she sees the repercussions of the previous episode where um commander lawrence had 
participated in a ceremony with June and she really broke down as a result of that. And Mrs. Lawrence really comes out and she is clutching a gun and she's ready to kill Mr. Lawrence and June stops it. And, you know, she goes, I want to kill him too. Um, but she I was, thought that moment was really powerful. Like, um, the who, silent rage, the silent rage came out in that episode. That right. piece. Yes, yes. And I think actually tying this to the gun violence, um, there's been a lot of chatter from conservatives that, um, that mental health is what causes gun violence, right? And, um, and video games. Don't forget well, video games. Obviously video games. Nothing like Mario Kart to like really kind of push you over the edge. Um, I want to make a distinction here that I feel very strongly that Eleanor pointing the gun at Commander Lawrence is Eleanor pointing the gun at Commander Lawrence. It is not her bipolar disease. It is her as a person feeling the rage and despair and anger towards her husband, the inability to stop this machine he has started. It feels justified to me. It is, it is not, I don't feel like we're supposed to interpret this as like, this is crazy, um, which is such ableist language. This is crazy, Eleanor. I'm like, no, that's just Eleanor. We talked about this last week. If I was sleeping next to a fucking monster every night and I knew that maybe killing him would help like 150,000 people, I don't know. I, ascribe, I, I struggle with not being a little Dumbledore in there and being like, yeah, maybe for the greater good, y'all. And if you all are following along, Marcy's <laughs> first Harry Potter reference has occurred. Take a drink. Uh, but yeah, but now Commander Lawrence really owes June his life and his right. wives because she probably would have killed herself as well. Killed herself or ended up on the wall. I, I'm going to guess that the punishment for killing a commander uh, is death. It's not being sent yeah. to the colonies. So uh, who's the HBIC in that house now? Girl, HBIC is June. And she owns it. She does. In this episode and next. She's literally, like, I wish they had played Lizzo's Truth Hurts while she's, like, <sighs> walking around a little bit. She's, like, her hair is down. She doesn't have her bonnet on. Like, I think this is something I want to note. I think this is the first scene in a very long time where we are seeing June as June. I think she is in this tiny moment free and herself. And like, that's like, one, she's taken back her power, hardcore. Like, Commander Lawrence owes her his life. She's got a plan in place. She, you know, like, she's not afraid in this moment. And I think that that's awesome. And so this is when she decides to tell Commander Lawrence, like, hey, by the way, we're getting 52 children out. And he's like, I'm sorry, come again, 52? And yeah. she- <laughs> And her hair is all down. She got no wings or bonnet. She's just her. She's just herself. And she's like, I need to get 52 children out. You owe me your fucking life. So does your wife. I need 52 children out. And we'll get I, you all out too. Well, she, yes. And I think that that's interesting because it makes a distinction. She says, you know, we'll get your wife out, but also you bring them 52 children. That's a bargaining chip. Like that is potentially something that you can offer Canada in return for your life. Right. Because he is fundamentally like we talked about this before he's the one who designed gilead i would say serena was the communications uh director she was the sarah sanders hope hicks uh but he is like the stephen miller so he, like it is it is extremely important to think about 
Commander Lawrence, up until this moment, probably views the only way out of this mess is death. And for the first time ever, June, to a certain extent, offers him, maybe you don't have to die if you do something good enough. Or, yeah, because that's the, I mean, not to spoil the next episode, but he's like, the only way we're getting in is with these children. Like, that's the only way I'm going to save myself. It's, you know, and we can spoil it a little bit, you know, but like, you know, Serena strikes back. That's all I'm going to say. We see bargaining chips and how they're being used. And it's on the backs of children, our favorite child caper scheme. Right. I will say that you know that I struggle with kind of some of the writing on this show. Um, When Commander Lawrence tells her she's crazy for thinking she can get 52 kids out, like she is crazy for getting, what happens when the 52 children are out? 52 Marthas are dead, right? Handmaids whose children are taken out, probably also on the like suspect list, dead. The drivers, the cargo folks, like Jimmy, the bartender who's bringing in the car, like everyone's dead. Like it is not a, like those 52 children maybe, like it would, it is not a well thought out plan. And it again centers June's idea of saving at the center versus a more like, like those children are not suffering right now. Get handmaids and Marthas and like other folks out, like and then work to dismantle Gilead. But like, you could potentially get 52 kids killed. You could potentially get everyone killed, but. But I mean, who, I mean, this is where we've been talking a lot about white feminism versus, you know, working with true intersectional lenses, right? Because the Marthas, you know, already have done all this work and they have like a cargo shipment coming in and they're like, we know how to get these kids out. And the Marthas don't trust her, obviously. And my favorite line is like, you jump on a train and you think you're Shay Guevara. Like, I mean, it's like, June really is trying, is emblematic of a lot of pieces we've deconstructed on the show before. Right, right. Um, so, sh- so she meets with the Marthas, right? And they're the ones who say, we do, ha- like, first off, you're crazy. Like you said, like, you do one thing and you think you're Che Guevara, who is not someone to look up to anyway. Um, okay. Um, exactly. But when June says, I've got a commander completely, like, under, like, under my spell like he owes me his fucking life um the marthas understand that that is also power and that they probably are not aware that commander lawrence's power is in question right now because they're they weren't at the house when like the uh like the waterfords and um what's his face showed up to force a ritual right so you know um the marthas are like when our shipment comes in, we will ship the kids out there. You need to figure out how to get them to the plane pretty much, right? So June's super excited. She goes home. She's ready to tell him, like, we just need some vans to get the kids to the cargo without anyone. So we need vans that will take the 52 children we are about to steal under the radar to through a bunch of checkpoints to the plane so that they can fly out to Canada. And um, she comes home to an empty house. And a note that says, I'm sorry. Uh, and like all these documents. Loses her shit. She does. She loses her shit. Um, all these documents, including what I'm going to guess were, were the red files, have been shredded. Um, I think something that might be something we have to put in our back pocket because um, there's no reason they included it unless it was like it, if it wasn't important is she manages to break open one of his um, desk drawers and there's a phone. And the phone when she picks it up, it's connected to someone because they're like Commander Lawrence, 
right? So I don't know who that phone is for. I don't know if it's to the Brotherhood of Jacob or if it's to resistance, but we know that Lawrence has ties to both. So it could be both. She hangs up and then um, Lawrence returns. So that was a weird scene for me because I was like, why put us through all of that if he's about to come right back? Yeah, and I didn't know what the point is of that. I was like, oh, he's gone. Like, this screws up everything. But then he came back and I was kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so he shows up. And he basically is like, you know, uh, he tells her the authorization points he had used and he needs new information and he's, basically not in power anymore you know we've seen this power struggle you know kind of really being deconstructed through his through his gaze and he never thought he would have to participate in the ceremonies yet he does he never thought he was applicable or that he would be held to that same standard and then he is and you know now he is without power which he's always had so he's always been able to run safe so that white hegemony that's always been there for these men and these positions of privilege i mean he really can't even get like a muffin out right right like he's neutered and then where does june tell him to take her well june does what i do which is when my day gets really shitty i just want to go to a fucking bar <laughs> so she's like you know what we're going to jezebel's and if you remember jezebel's jezebel's is the for lack of a better term whorehouse that all the commanders know about and act like a super cool um it's yeah where, we, where myra was it's um it's where commander waterford used to like to take june in her little beaded dress like and he would go by himself too he would go by himself as well and so she wants to go talk to billy the bartender who the marthas had mentioned is the one orchestrating uh the cargo shipment um so i love the names of these places here's here's what you love and i actually tell this to people all the time when they talk about harry potter like these names are so obvious they feel natural right Right? like yeah i mean like you if you look at like harry potter like um jk rowling uses like all these like latin words um for her spells and places and like uses she pulls from like all over the place so that literally what sounds like super super like funky is is literal descriptions of like of of what you are like describing so so Jezebel's biblically makes total sense, right? Like Sons of Jacob makes total sense. Uh, Loaves and Fishes biblically makes total sense. It's just when you put them all together in world building, it makes a place feel familiar. And you're like, of course it's Jezebel's. And natural. Natural. That's a, that's a good word for it. Um, so yeah, so she, so I guess every commander has has like, I don't know, like bar hopping clothes in a secret corner because like i can do it whenever right so i don't think anyone was taking mrs lawrence to jezebel's so i'm just kind of laughing at the fact that like there would be clothing for june to put on to go to jezebel's but alas there is and she goes to jezebel and uh multiple choice john what drink does she order a gin and tonic nasperl spritz or a moscow mule gin and tonic false none of them because she's an idiot the least she could have done was get a drink exactly (laughs) i mean girl she earned it what's your favorite drink um anything boo be honest no um so right now from wisconsin 
first of all, don't shame my people. Um, and by the way, when you're in college and all you have is $10 and you can go to a bar and drink all night and then come home with $8, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> However, I always, when I, it depends, like if I'm at a happy hour or something easy, it's always like wine or beer. Like that's just easy. Cause I don't, cause I'm from Wisconsin. So obviously my tolerance is you know that of a greek god um however uh when i'm like at a really nice restaurant or i'm at like out with friends like i just went to the magic castle i'll always order a dirty vodka martini one i love the magic castle Mm -hmm. (laughs) and two that's all i heard because now i'm just wishing i was at the magic castle in los angeles um what's yours mars my favorite drink (sighs) probably actually no it'll be anything with absinthe um i was like a huge fan of this bar in los angeles called hemingway's lounge Um, love that place i love that place and every every single drink is named after a hemingway book and every single drink has absinthe and every single drink would cause me to full-on turn into a different person and god bless everyone that would bring me home so not like (laughs) brent Brent was bringing me home, but, um, I enjoy like pretty much gin with some absinthe and some berries muddled and some spritzer is my jam. Basically you easy. (laughs) I mean, let's be real. I started in college with like wine coolers. Well, you did go to like, well, I guess you went to FSU. No, I should, but like by week three of FSU, I was like a raging alcoholic. So, um, all right. So back to the bar, back to the bar. So June pulls something out of her sleeve that really shocked me. And you'll be like, yeah, you did tell us that this was a thing. If you remember in DC, I told you that commander Winslow slash Sadler's house was full of art from the national gallery. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I recognize all those pieces. I was an art history major in undergrad. Um, well, I was right. <laughs> and Commander Lawrence apparently has a mini MoMA at his house. So June bribes Billy, the bartender, secretly part of the resistance who's bringing in this shipment of whatever it is, by saying, I will give you every single Picasso, Cezanne, anything, anything. It's like all every yours. Si- it's all yours. And if you're thinking in modern day money, um, a Picasso can go for a hundred million dollars. She's offering him literally the type of money you couldn't, you couldn't think of. It's, it's numbers you couldn't think of. Because um, mind, remember, it's still in Gilead, but to the rest of the world, to it's the rest still... of the world, it like look the U.S. It, it the U.S. art art archive art collection is like we couldn't put a number on what it's worth. We really couldn't. Just, just, I'm thinking in my head, just the Monet's, right, uh, in Pittsburgh at the um, Carnegie Mellon Museum. Like, we're, we're looking at half a, a trillion dollars. <laughs> or, like, half a billion dollars. So, like, that, I understand Billy, myself as an art lover. Billy being like, yeah, okay, I'll do it, whatever. Like, yes, I will risk my life for if you, I, that type of money could buy you a way out of Gilead right? And it does. Um, And it does. And so as she's turning super proud, her plan's working. She's like, I'm... She's like, give me that martini. She's like, bomb bitch, got this. She runs into who, John? 
she runs in to Commander Winslow. Sadler. Sadler from SVU. Or from Oz. Or from Oz. Or from Oz, true, true. Or from, like, every other show where he, like, makes everyone. You're, like, the only human I know who doesn't. I mean, SVU is literally, like, in my blood. Like, I just, you know what? There's enough torture. There is enough. You're entirely right. You are entirely right. I don't need to, like, every week be like, I'm going to go watch another case about how some schmuck got away with raping children. Like, I'm already, I already cannot read the stories about the Boy Scouts right now that's going on. I saw that yesterday. Yeah, Um, we won't talk about, we'll talk about that maybe in another episode. However... I will say the rest of this episode, I I was just, I loved. Right. I would just like to say, though, uh, Google the, the Boy Scout story, and then remember John and I telling you that modern American capitalism, white supremacy, cisgendered patriarchy, what a, no one cares about children. Like, we have got to unless stop pretending. Unless you're June. <laughs> right, unless you're June. We've got to stop pretending that this is like a pro-life, pro-children country. The right, moment, so- the moment people decided it was okay to kill kids at sandy hook and no one and right. nothing happened america that's when that's when it became normal right right um right like yep <laughs> uh, yep. yep so we we she runs into sadler winslow commander winslow officially and her lie to him is that Commander Lawrence sent her, sent her so she could have a good time and come back and like tell him about all her good times. It's like such a bullshit lie. Like no one would believe, I don't think he believes it, right? Um, but then he pretty much says like, all right, well, I'll give you a story to tell Commander Lawrence. And we all know this is not gonna be good. Uh, you know what I did think though, because it is a place of depravity, like. I thought that maybe he would have been there with, like, he would, they would have had a scene or an interaction, and, like, you would have seen that maybe he was there with another man. I, I thought so, too, because you and I said we both picked up on kind of homoerotic kind of... But maybe that's just me wanting him. No, but, but I want to remind you that, like, power precedes sexuality. So, so he could very well be a queer man, but but the but that that does not actually correlate with like why he would want to rape a handmaid in this world because if you remember like if he is in a very strict conservative christian like nightmare of a government so he like it's not like like gay men who marry women because they're afraid to come out don't have sex with them right or don't like, like, so I don't think it, I don't think it's one or the other. I think he is still up for discussion, but, the, but it, being gay would not preclude him from, from raping June, particularly as a leader of the type of religious Oh, no, I was just maybe like, oh, maybe the show will give us an insight there because there was some right. play on Yeah, there was definitely some play there. And so obviously, like, he takes June into a room and he wants her kind of to just submit to like his violence because i knew only one of them was coming out did you yeah i was like he's he's totally done i did not and i say this because 
I say this because her inner dialogue felt very real to me and probably feels extremely real to every woman listening to this. Well, yeah. Her inner dialogue is how we survive. And I say that like as a survivor of assault, like you in, like we hear June in her head say, I've done this. Like, I am not, this isn't me. I'm not my flesh. I'm disconnecting from this. I've done this before. I will get through this. I'm not here. Like not to make light of, but like straight up Kimmy Schmidt, I can do anything for 10 minutes. Like I can do anything for 10 minutes. I can survive this. But I do think that when we're talking about continuous abuse, we also always talk about there is a breaking point. Either you die or you have a breaking point. And we, for the, what I think is honestly the first time in the, in like June's narrative saw an actual breaking point before. I mean, she was able to go through the, this dialogue when, when commander Lawrence was raping her, but she just couldn't this time. Right. Yeah. So then like she snaps, she completely snaps. Oh, she does. Uh, and in no surprise to anyone, he seems very turned on by her aggression, uh, which is vomit-inducing. So they're, they're throwing blows at each other, and she manages to grab a pen and, like, starts to stab him over and over and over again. And all I could think was, an editor's work is never done, my friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep going, bitch. <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. Um, John, why don't you tell us about his last moments and my notes that I put in our uh, outline? So um, there, are, she's basically um, had her head rammed into the floor because he gets really violent with her. And basically she turns around, she grabs the pen and she steps him over and over and over again. And she basically starts weakening because she hits him in the side, probably by the lungs and everywhere. I think she gets him in the neck. Um, And then she's able to escape from him and stand up over him as he's like this weak, meek little man in front of her. And then um, she grabs in a very how to get away with murder season one uh, moment, a statue, like a, like a big statue you can grab. um, And she's about to just whack him over the head and he looks at her and grasps and like screams out my children and you're like <laughs> girl you do not care about your children but it's too late because june then whacks him over the head and she said and kills him and he's dead right how did you feel about his last words fuck you fuck you. i keep going to like the children <laughs> like just stop it stop it like oh my god oh my god the fact that like his last please like but think of the children i'm like i can't i like the and and i think part of the reason i can't is because i have literally been in communion with people who have this type of a disconnect where they're like think of the children abortions kill children and i'm like so so like we should totally fund like Planned Parenthood and like sexual education and everyone should use condoms and and birth control. No, no, no. And then I'm like, wait, what? What is with this disconnect? Like the fact that he thought he could pull that out, like, and that like that mattered. Well, he tries to appeal to like her maternal like instinct that he thinks is like within these women because he's just a stupid man, right? And you're just like, no. I want to acknowledge that in his head, he like, I do think he honestly thinks of those children as his children. 
And I honestly think that the disconnect of him being this pious Christian dictator of a man uh, while simultaneously visiting brothels, while simultaneously raping women, uh, while simultaneously being the father of eight uh, and being an up, like an upstanding like figure of Christian patriarchal virtue, like that, none of that surprises me. None of it, because we're seeing it, we're seeing it play out like every, like he, he's a Mike Pence, right? Like he's oh, like, yeah. yeah, he's like, um, yeah, I'll put kids in cages. I don't give a shit if they like shoot black people. I don't give a shit about indigenous lands. But then he's like, think of the children, like, Think of the children seeing gay people. It's like, fuck off. Like, fuck off. You are a walking disconnect. And whether or not you realize it is not important to me because it puts lives in danger. Like, I don't, um, yeah, I was, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe he yelled at my children. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like, they're not your children. <laughs> so what happens then after he's dead? We have one of the coolest scenes I think we've had in this show, and I think you and I agree on this. Yeah, Kate Bush's cloud busting is playing over. As, so um, Martha shows up um, in the room to clean. June's, you know, really shooken um, because obviously she's probably got a concussion. You know, she just killed someone. She's like, how am I going to get out of this one? But um, a Martha shows up that she actually gave mercy to um, when she was in Chicago in those cages and that scene with Commander Lawrence. Um, and basically, um, she's there now, and she cleans up, and she basically tells her there's a service elevator in the back. That's how you can get out. And she leaves. Commander Lawrence, you know, picks her up in the car, and he's like, what the hell? Um, and then the Martha show up, and Kate Bush's cloud busting is playing. And <laughs> they're like, it's almost like kind of like this magical dance clean montage. And It's like a ballet. It reminded me of the scene in Us where um, the two different versions of – uh, the lead character played by Lupita Nyong'o are kind of, dan- it was just a beautiful dance of like women. It was. And I loved it. And they basically make the room look spotless and they burn his body. Right. Never to be found again. They put his body in the laundry bin, which I think is symbolic that like, oftentimes we feel like we don't have the tools to defeat our oppressors. And like, you can use the tools at hand. Like, like we can be creative in reimagining our power, right? Literally, they used cleaning as their power, as their superpower. And I think that that is And they incredible. got every spot. Yeah, it's, got, it's gone. And they so sweetly were like, June, you need to go out the back end. Like, it'll be fine. Like, just go, go. We got this. Which makes me think it's not the first commander that has died at Jezebel's. Because oh, that no. was very well coordinated. Yeah. Um, so... I actually split this uh, coverage of episode 11 into the, I didn't intersperse the two storylines because I wanted to keep um, the final storyline separate. Um, But as all of this is happening, we have a second storyline with Serena and Fred, um, which you appreciated quite a bit. I, we've all been waiting for this moment. (laughs) Have we, John? (laughs) Well, one of us has. Right. So <laughs> Rena and Fred are kind of like on this Bonnie and Clyde trip to get Nicole, which no one, uh, I mean, we know in the last episode, Serena used the cell phone that Mark Twello, Hottie McHottie from Canada, who keeps hitting on Love her, him. Um, had given her in case she needed help. 
Um, Waterford doesn't question it. He's just like, yeah, if you think that's a way to get Nicole, let's do this. Uh, and so they're on this trip. Uh, they head north, and we know that heading north means heading towards Canada. Um, so they head north. Uh, my guess is into like, I don't even know northern states past like Boston, like Vermont. I don't know. Maine. I don't know. But they head north. They end up at like this like Mennonite Airbnb. And then, yes, when they're in the convertible, we hear resistance radio. And who is the voice of resistance radio? Oprah. Oprah. <laughs> Which I still love. Um, and Serena gets to drive. She gets to drive. Her hair is in the wind. And they're just having like the best date ever. But like, the like best afternoon. Yes. But like any episode of Love Island, the state of bliss is not going to last very long. No, because they end up at a, like a Mennonite Airbnb. And Serena, once they park that car and have had their fill, they've prayed with the Mennonites and they go upstairs. She's like, you took my writing career away and you took my talents away and you let things get out of control. And that's why we're here. And then he, to a certain extent, says, I, similar to Lawrence, this mimics Lawrence, I didn't realize it would get this bad. Like, I didn't think things would end up like this, which is, which is white male code for, I didn't think it would affect us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they talk it out and they end up kind of holding hands in their Lucy and Ricky side-by-side -side little twin beds. And then um, we get our first sign that something is amiss because Rita, who I didn't, I don't know how she got to Vermont because she wasn't in the... Uh, she wasn't the car. in the car, like, but Serena says goodbye to, to Rita and like tells her like, this is, we're, we're going to fight for Nicole. Like, this is the best way to do it. And like, you, their, their goodbye is an emotional goodbye, right? And so Serena says goodbye to her and she says, we're going to meet Twello a little bit up north. I vouch for him. And Fred is like getting a little angsty in the car. He's like, are you sure? I feel like we're going way too far, way too far. Well, that scene when they're just like driving forever. I mean, it's very long. The tension. The tension. Tame, tame the tension. And, and like Fred, you can tell, is incrementally getting more and more tense. Um, and, then, and then, oh shit, they cross into Canada. Well, you don't know. So they play it where they finally get into this really thick part of the woods because he's probably thinking, oh, he wants to go somewhere super private. And then they basically get out of the car and they're like, where are you? And then they he the guy lets the tea spill and he's like, actually you're in Canada and you see just swarms of so many people and you hear that um, Tulelo and the Canadian forces are arresting them and Fred is told he's being arrested for war crimes, persecution, torture of civilians, the whole enchilada and you're like, holy shit. Yeah, it's, it, I mean like a crazy, crazy, crazy moment. And so I wanna say that Tuelo looks at him and says, uh, when he says you're being arrested for war crimes, he reads them out. Persecution and torture of civilians, cruel and inhumane treatment, kidnapping, slavery, and rape. Those are his war crimes, which obviously, that's not enough to encapsulate everything he's done. But there was something very awesome about hearing it said. Like, here is what you, as a war criminal, will be charged with for now until we get the bigger picture. We know these for a fact. Right. And then Fred screams out at them, don't hurt Serena. And, and she's I, like kind of being taken away, but led into a completely different car, which is kind of like your first you can, 
I mean, Sign. you can tell she's not being arrested. Her war crimes are not being read out. Fred's war crimes are. And that is the end of episode 11. So great episode. Great episode. It was good. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, great, great, great episode. Uh, moving on to episode 12, which is called Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Um, you and I are going to disagree on this episode. Bring it. Bring it. So, okay, we're going to disagree because I think the writing is shit, but I think we both, I think we might both like where this episode ends up. Yes. Does that make sense? Yep. Uh, similar to Game of Thrones, I'm okay with where you led I'm me. I'm still not over it. <laughs> but the road is a little shitty. So, June, obviously, is back at the Lawrence's house and is waiting for, in her head, the eyes to show up because she just murdered a, a commander. So she's even got a gun in her hand. Because Commander Lawrence, we forgot to say that, he gives her a gun. He gives her a gun and because he picks her up from, he's waiting for her at Jezebel's. Um, so this is a nod to the ending of the actual Handmaid's Tale book. The ending of the book ends with June waiting uncertainly for eyes to come and pick her up. She may or may not die. Right. So obviously June is not in the know that the Marthas took care of it. Right. They, they came in, they took care of everything. So instead of eyes, um, Eleanor Lawrence goes upstairs and she kind of in her very kind of manic state tells June, she should go downstairs because commander Lawrence has some very unexpected visitors and they're very irate, which if you're waiting for people to come kill you, that's going to be terrifying. Um, but it's not the eyes and it's not like it's not forces to take her down that have arrived um it's commanders that have come to lawrence because they're furious and scared that waterford and serena have been arrested in canada yeah people um, are starting to find out yeah people are starting to find out um and so apparently lawrence Lawrence's biggest agitators must have been Commander Winslow and Commander Waterford because I think it's Putnam and who who is it? Putnam and Clahouse are the two that show up. Like the second that Waterford and uh, Winslow are out of the picture, all of a sudden everyone's going back to Lawrence because he's the he's literally the the top there. And they're like, like we can reinstate all those clearances. Well, it looks like he had support. Right. It's just that Waterford and Winslow flex their muscles. But like these commanders are like, what do we do next? Do we escalate to a war? Is this a diplomatic crisis? Like who's in power now? Uh, and then they let it slip that they think that Winslow was captured by the Canadians as well. And so they're there because they need someone to lead them and help them make decisions. And fundamentally, Lawrence is now, I guess, kind of like the highest up that they can Fine, they also consider him to be an extremely smart man who might understand diplomacy better than their dumbass raping uh, butts, right? Stupid people. So here's where we get into some nonsensical writing. You don't say. This entire show is built on the premise that they trust handmaids. They trust Martha's. And like, it's like, June's just able to walk around while they're having this conversation, like, she is so dehumanized by them that they don't view her as a threat, right? And like, we've seen that happen with Martha's as well. And it's just kind of funny that like, these women are literally able to, 
to get very high level information because they've been so dehumanized that like they're not uh, considered a threat. So she's drinking it all in, right? Like she's like, this is the best new, best day ever. Best day ever. And then what is Lawrence whispered? He whispers to June when they get, get up to leave. Um, he goes, Fred and Serena are toast and you just got away with murder. All in all, not a bad morning. Which is such a, first off, agreed, wonderful morning. It was a great line. And Bradley Whitford delivered it perfectly. Right. And June starts laughing. Like real hysterical, like laughing. Like there's glee in the way that she's laughing. Like this is, this is one of the few moments in the show where we have seen her experience serious happiness. And it kind of breaks my heart because I think she assumes that this means one, that the Waterfords can't hurt her anymore. Two, Wrong. that they will be held accountable for their crimes. Wrong. And three, that now Nicole is safe. Really wrong. How wrong, are, how wrong was June? Well, I mean, she, June wrong. puts her, the problem with June is she puts her faith in things that she doesn't really know how to play out because she's still such a character that in the scheme of things, like because of the writing, they make her seem like she's the master. But in reality, other forces are manipulating her. And that's where this, why, why I like this episode's ending so much is because you slowly see that like someone who was in on it with her finally realizes what right. happened. Right. Agreed. And I, I think, um, this is where the episode for me goes to shit and it's similar to game of thrones i know why they need to get to where they're going or in some of it some of it i don't but some of these decisions are as bad as gray worm never showing up ever like it's just it's i so uh fred and serena are not in like some dungeon Right, they're not in some, some type like, of really nice modern architectural digest room holding cell. Oh, they're like in an IKEA showroom. Like that's what their jailhouse looks like. It's like walking through IKEA. Like um, it is super bouge. It's like a boutiquey like hotel, um, which I found annoying. Uh, like uh, I don't believe in like mass incarceration. I don't believe in anything. But you know, war criminals really shouldn't have like velvet cites to lounge on like get, get your shit together canada and so serena here again is two people are just allowed to be in a room together to talk when from a it, it doesn't make sense logistically like why would guards be like serena go talk to fred like no you would keep them separate from here on out right but serena's allowed to go in to talk to fred in his like bougie suite and like you know, like she should be saying, like, I betrayed you. But she says, which you would not understand because you were not in like a Christian, like super youth group or a cult. She says the biggest cut, which is, I will pray for you. She literally just, when that happened, I was like, wow, I knew it. But like, I was like, mm hmm, that one yeah. felt good. Yeah, like I like I really wish they had paid, played Kesha's praying. Yeah, like it was like I was like that is like the ultimate peak of Christian shade. Um, it's just it's so brutal, and she's like, you don't have to worry about me. I'll pray for you, and it's like the light goes on in Waterford's eyes of like, what did you do? 
Like, what did you do? What did you do? And she's like, I'll pray for you. And like, I'm like, you Bye, bitch. dumbass. Like, you're so dumb. You knew in the car something was wrong. Like, you knew. I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine and content with him getting caught and tried for war crimes. But I, I'll, I'll be generous. They have told, they have showed us multiple times that he's like, kind of like an idiot softie. Yeah. Well, he's remember this whole season. Also, I mean, it seems like forever, but like, you know, he also has been always trying trying to to get her her back. back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, that that moment leads to what I still can't understand. I don't get. The, well, this was this. when they bring Nicole to see Serena. Well, they do this because this was the arrangement, right? And this is government, like, telling the people what they're going to do because this is what they're doing. My, to... Myra, Moira and Luke arrive at Shea Ikea with Nicole um, because you, cause you say this is part of the agreement. I'm like, the agreement with who? Like Canada, well, with Serena. Yes, but Canada cannot force Luke and Myra to hand over June's child, even for visitation rights. Like, so, and, and Myra says multiple times, we don't have to do this. We don't have to be here. So they consent to this. Yeah. And like what the show is asking me to believe is that Waterford is such a massive handover that Serena and Moira, maybe not even Moira, in Luke's eyes, has earned the right to see Nicole. And like, I'm sorry, but like, there's no part of me as a human that is handing a child, even if they're not mine, to one of the architects of Gilead. Like, and so the, I, I wonder if Luke is thinking about that last time he met Serena, where at the end she made kind of like that threat where she was like, you should know that I'm the one who's protected her. Like, and I could like, I could like, she kind of insinuated that like June's ha- life is in her hands. So this feels coerced to me. Yeah. Like, like, but it doesn't make sense from a writing perspective. Like, there is no way that Luke agrees that if the Canadian government calls up and says, hey, she's willing to hand over Waterford if you give her some visitation rights. I just, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see it. Do you? No, I mean, I get why Serena turned in her husband and the chip was, I get to see Nicole. And they were like, got it right right like it's just such a strange moment and then moira is the one who brings her into serena and moira at least tells the truth but the truth makes it says that waterford raped her too yeah she's like you held down june while she was raped he raped me at a whorehouse he's a piece of shit you're a piece of shit and yet she hands over june's child her best friend's child to this woman like this is nonsensical the thing is is like i don't know if they have a choice though but then is the canadian government being coercive yeah i definitely think the canadian government saying we are dealing with like a geopolitical situation here we just got a humongous win with serena this is technically neither of yours child and it's no one's child but you know the mother and who know where who knows where the fuck nick is right but what i'm saying is like he this this was the agreement and this is where we see government always involving itself in the day-to-day lives of people even though you think that there is sovereignty there's not i am horrified by this writing i'm horrified by it i think if you have if you're asking me to believe this i needed more i needed more than that well yeah like i 
the value of Fred and Serena makes sense to me, but the but there is no version of Myra and Luke that would do this. Especially since Nick, with Serena and Fred in Canada, they can't do shit for June either. It's not like they can protect her where she is. Like there's not there's no trade-off. And if can't and I just don't believe I know Canadians are like the nicest people. Like they're not gonna force them to hand them over. So all right. Well but they're in a different situation, I think. Right. In 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 other and they're in a wartime situation. They are in like, a wartime situation. And again, I'm going to stick to my, my thesis that even people who say they care about kids don't care about kids. Um, so in other like really fucking weird meetings, Luke is allowed to go into the room with Fred unattended. Uh, sure. Okay. That makes sense. Like, Okay. <laughs> Uh, sure. Let John go in with Daenerys right after she's killed everyone and Grey Worm disappeared. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, sure. Luke comes in with a binder full of women. Like, literally. It's like a binder full of every single one of Fred's crimes. And, like, they talk a bit. And I think Luke is trying to understand how a man of faith uh, could have evolved into this, like, war criminal in front of him. And is struggling with it. It's a great scene. It's a great scene because underneath the rage you get from Luke is still a man trying to understand. And, and I think I've seen this happen with like, um, if you've watched documentaries on like the child abuse scandals in the Catholic church for folks who literally love the church and feel super, 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 super betrayed by the priests that have abused them. Like there's documentaries where victims literally try to talk to their abuser and say, how could you go from being this person of faith to this monster? And like, there's never going to be a satisfying ending. There's not a satisfying answer to that because ultimately what we're talking about is not religiosity. We're talking about power and absolute power and control. corrupts. Absolutely. Exactly. It is about control. And it's the fact that like, Simil- like there's a reason the Boy Scouts mimic- mimics the Catholic Church, which mimics the abuse of girls in the FLDS system. It's because fundamentally we're not talking about anything other than how absolute power will absolutely corrupt every single fucking time. Uh, However, Waterford wins this conversation argument. Tell me why you think that. Waterford unravels Luke with a scalpel. And because Luke says all the stuff he says to Waterford, Waterford's heard that before. But what Luke hasn't heard really, or really had the opportunity to talk to is Waterford. And Waterford's smarter than Luke. And he just takes a scalpel and just takes it right to the heart and just guts him with what he says. Tell me what he says. Well, because it's not on our outline, Marcy. Uh, I don't remember what he said. He says, he says fundamentally that like, well, cause Luke is like, uh, the, the June that I knew is like gone and like Waterford is pretty much like, you didn't know June and the June that exists now, like you don't know her, but you didn't know her before we, she's. So he says Gilead's changed her. Right. I've changed her. I've changed her. Gilead's changed her. How dare you go after my outline, you little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I it's, did send it to you in an email, Marcy. You did send it to me in an email. Um, um, that was in the email. <laughs> that, per, 
see below, which is like the most passive aggressive thing you can ever email someone. Oh, which I got today from one of our assistants who does not know her place. Um, so I think what's important here is that they're both right. Luke is right that they broke June and they have changed her. Waterford is right that there are parts of June that by the fire that is Gilead have come out, but they are not new. They were there. Right. And like, that doesn't make it right. Which, um, but like, but Emily has this kind of moment in a couple episodes back where she's like, am I a murderer? Was I always going to be a murderer or am I a murderer because I was turned into a murderer? Do I even need to feel bad about it? When we were discussing that kind of thing, um, I, w- I would say that the, I- I'll do it through my own lens, my own lens of religious trauma. The Marcy before she went into a cult and experienced religious trauma and the Marcy afterward are the same Marcy. It, it is just interesting to me that like the strength that I found after leaving, the voice and agency that I found to fight and be scrappy and survive And like, I literally view every day post fanatical Catholicism, every single day that I survive is a win, right? But the person here, I was still in there when I was like 18 before I got in there. Like, so they're both right. Like things change, change us, but not fundamentally. We are who we are. And so like, I think this applies in a lot of ways, but like if Luke found out that by the end of this episode, June will have killed two people, he would be like, there's no fucking way June's killed anyone, right? Because he can't possibly understand what June has gone through. But the capacity to protect herself to that extent, he does know that was in her because he has said a million times she's a fighter. I just think it's hard for people to sometimes come to terms with the fact that trauma can fundamentally change the way a person engages the world and those around them. Well, it's the same conversation we had regarding season one when we talked about the Purge TV show. Yes. And the blue bus cult people, and I can't remember her name, the, the girl and her brother. Right, right, right. Very good point, yeah. And guys, if you didn't watch the Purge season one, we recommend you should because Purge season two is coming out in October and we will be covering it. Ba-boom. So, kaboom. Uh, so back in Gilead, this is and the for the final crux of the episode. And remember, everyone, this is like the last episode before the finale. Yes, yes, it is. So back in Gilead, Mrs. Lawrence is starting to kind of really lose it. Um, she keeps forgetting that things are secret. So the plan to to take the children, uh, <laughs> she keeps forgetting, is not something to mention to people. Mrs. Winslow and Mrs. Putnam are at the house. Um, Mrs. Winslow is expressing like extreme concern. Her husband's missing. He's dead. Um, and she's worried about herself and all their children because apparently Gilead, if this happens, her children can be taken away and she and her children can be reassigned to other people. And so she's like, my children. And I'm like, those were your husband's last words, bitch. (laughs) Nice try. Um, And then the problem is Mrs. Lawrence is not doing well. So when she hears this appeal for the children, she says, well, all the children can come with us. We can save them all. And like Mrs. Winslow and Mrs. Putnam are like, what the fuck are you talking about? And June is like, why the fuck are you saying that? And Mr. Lawrence is like, fuck. 
And it is an awful scene because Mrs. Lawrence is not only a danger to the plan, she is a danger to everyone involved, everyone around her, right? Yep. So, like, when Mrs. Putnam and Mrs. Winslow Sadler leave, June loses her shit on her and is, like, shaking her and is, like, you have to stop it. Like, you cannot do this. You have to stop it. And it goes on for quite a bit. And finally, Lawrence steps in and says, all right, I think you've said enough. And Mrs. Lawrence really clear-headedly says, no, she's right. She's right. I'm putting everyone in danger. And then what happens? And then, basically... Um... Mrs. Lawrence goes upstairs and some time passes. It's nighttime and she attempts to overdose and June is um, checking in on her um, and June sees her. She can't really wake her because she's clearly OD'd and June sees a moment of where she can either make sure the mission in quotes is safe or put everything at risk. And so June doesn't stop her um, and she allows her to overdose and she gives her a kiss goodbye. And then she goes into her bedroom and we get another close up shot of June. And it's kind of like a time lapse shot where you see the night kind of pass through and it's day and you hear the Martha go into Mrs. Lawrence's room and she can't wake her because she's dead. Right. And, and this is June's second kill in two episodes. It's, I mean, it's horrible. Um, it is something that I think we should debate as viewers. Like, is this a justifiable kill? Um, because I'm not going to let you off the hook. June, June is responsible for Mrs. Lauren's death. She could have stopped it. She didn't. Now, Dumbledorean-wise, is it for the greater good? Sure, I guess. But is that June? Killing Winslow, fuck yeah, kill Winslow. Like, fuck yeah. Kill Aunt Lydia. Like, I just, I don't, this is a hard kill for me because it doesn't, it, it doesn't, doesn't feel justified. So I'm, I'm sitting with it unwell. Yeah. I mean, and also we have to remember the big influence Mrs. Lawrence had over Mr. Lawrence. So and... I, was, I was about to say long-term, you just, that was his reason for living. That was his reason for being part of the resistance. Like that I like I would not have killed her because I think it kills his hope. Yeah, because then we get to the funeral and everyone's there and they're in a black handmaid's outfit, which is actually better than the red. And um they all oh, leave. I look so good in red. I know you do, but I'm just saying, um, basically they all leave. We see our aunt Lydia and she goes, I need a moment alone. And then it's a very silent moment between her and Lawrence and Lawrence realizes kind of what June did. Um, and then we get another close up shot of June's face again in the black and the episode is done. Yes. I feel uncomfortable with this episode. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable with it because I, I, I think our with a lot of it, everything ranging from the use of Nicole as a plot point, not a plot point, as a government point, like whatever's happening there makes me uncomfortable plot-wise. But now June has made a conscious decision to kill someone who I'm going to consider an innocent person for the greater good. And I do think that that is not the same thing as killing someone. And unless noted otherwise, like we talked in other episodes, I don't know her backstory. It seems like she was always against this. She has been the moral voice that kept Commander in line, Commander Lawrence in line. She, she did not deserve to die. 
Um, and if it's for the greater good, then we'd have to have discussions about what the greater good means because a lot of awful and evil things in this world have been done in the name of the greater good. So this changes, this goes back to the conversation of June and who she is. Again, June has been changed, period. For the good or bad is what's up for debate. The main point is to understand what happens to your show when you no longer know if your hero is a good or bad person. Right, right. That's actually a really good way to put it. Um, we've seen this with Daenerys, right? We saw it with Daenerys. It's a major trope of, um, you know, so in television. Now, we, it's a major trope for female liberators. And that is yeah. what's frustrating. Because um, what price are you willing to pay to in your idea, get the greater good going. I think we saw it a lot. We see it in the Hunger Games, right? When in the third book, we've talked about that on this show. The voting Um, of whether or not to kill coin is a moment where we have those questions. The moment where Daenerys decides to burn down King's Landing, we have those questions. Obviously we have it here. I am uncomfortable with it. I should be uncomfortable with it. But John, do you know what the most uncomfortable part of it is? And this is why it sticks so beautifully. If I look in the mirror and I ask myself, how, how far, how would, am I, what would you do? How far am I willing to go to resist and bring down an evil regime? I don't, I know myself well enough to know that my hands would not be clean. Yeah. So there, there it is. End of episode. And 12. that's, and, and that also end of episode 12. Yes. But that is why I love the man in the high castle. Yes, also a great show. And Juliana is a great example of, I think, a, a female character who's gone through everything, but she still is the same character. Yes, agreed. Juliana so, is that character. So next week is the season finale, and we wanted to leave you guys with just some of our questions. John, I didn't even ask you, so if you have any other than the ones I wrote down in the outline, some questions I would like answered in the next episode. Oh, wait, did you incorporate my stuff in the outline? I did. You bitch. I did. I did. I'm sorry. I did. It's been a long day. I love you. So what are some of your questions? for Who's going to die? Who's going to die? You think someone's going to die in the next episode? I definitely think someone's going to get killed. I either, maybe it's Watt, maybe it's Mr. Waterford. Um, I still have always thought Luke was a goner, so I don't know if that's going to happen anymore. Um, I definitely think Mr. Lawrence maybe doesn't make it out. I think Mr. Lawrence doesn't make it p- past the next episode. I'm going to agree. Yeah. Prediction one is there. Um, so, my, um, yeah. Yeah, my, my gut is that Commander Lawrence has no reason to live anymore. So that sucks um i need to know what the fuck is up with nick yeah where is mr hitler himself why would you give me such a juicy little storyline out of the blue halfway through the season and then never touch it again because they're bastards Uh, unless there is some type of contractual dispute or he wants off the show fuck you for taking maybe the most interesting nugget of the show and being like all right that's it yeah and i'm okay with nick leaving the show personally just stop it how dare you? I want more of, I don't want more of Nick. Cause like I want Nick. I want more of Nick because I was an interesting storyline. Uh, yeah. What? So I want to know what happens with Nicole. Like what is this arrangement with Serena? Uh, I want to know what happens when Canada says no bitches. We don't have commander Winslow and they have to start really thinking about what happened to commander Winslow. I'm bummed out that like Emily is 
again, like a storyline that I want to follow that we have not had a lot of engagement with. What about you? I th- I think that a war is going to get started. I think next season, the last season is, is like the war. The war. Interesting. You're right. You're right. Like if, if it's that is following, the only thing that makes sense. Like if it's following, like you know, I think we're like in Hunger Games season two territory. I'm uh, episode two, like territory right now. We're like a war is about to be started. Agreed. And yeah. I think June's going to have to realize. I think maybe June gets the kids out, but there's a war. Maybe that's the catalyst for the war. And like my hope is actually, I didn't even realize I wanted this. I want her to get the kids out. I want um, Hannah to be included in that. Then I want her fighting on the other side against Gilead. Yeah, me too. I don't want her fighting from within Gilead. I'm kind of tired of Gilead. Yeah, that's a that's boring. So a lot of people are like either don't if that if this finale really sucks, a lot of people I've talked to and it's online too are like they're done with the show. I'm tired. I'm tired. Like, like, like I said earlier, either you give a heroine or a hero movement or you kill them. But like, I can't. It would be great if they killed June, like if she sacrificed herself, but they're not going to do that. This is starting to, it's, I don't want it to feel like walking dead where it was like just walking in circles around Georgia for 12 years. And it's like, and we have a new bad every five seconds. Yeah, like a new bad character every five seconds. Like, I would kill myself. Like, I'd be like, goodbye. Remember when that show was good? I was such a long time. I was such a, I was a baby. I was a baby. It was in my first year of marriage, and I'm coming up against 10. <laughs> yeah. I did watch Fear of the Walking Dead for a while. How was that? The first season I thought was great. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'm holding out hope for this series finale, not series, season finale for Game of Thrones. I'm holding out hope for the second season of The Purge. Um, And so we will be back next week to do a full episode solely on the season finale. Super exciting. Blessed be, everyone. Mm -hmm.